You are listening to Reels and Riffs with Random Allen on WWSU 106.9 FM. Reels and Riffs is your number one stop for film talk, the sweet sound of classic rock, and the best special guests on college radio. Now kick back, relax, and enjoy the next hour. The views and opinions expressed on Reels and Riffs are my own and do not reflect the views and opinions of WWSU 106.9 FM or Wright State University. Welcome to the new and improved show, everybody. Yes, as many have noticed, I am changing the name of the show. While the show's old name, A Random Attempted Comedy, will always hold a special place in my heart. Because of the title of my first solo show back at Centerville High School, the name just doesn't describe my current show. I talk about movies and classic rock primarily, so I feel like Reels and Riffs is more appropriate. With that out of the way, I feel like a new name deserves new segments to go along with it, and I present the first of those segments right now. Welcome to Vinyl Deep Dive. On this segment, I'll be presenting you with in-depth discussions about classic rock, album discussion, and a little bit of music history and the sweet sound of vinyl to get you through that afternoon grind. But I'm just now getting into record collecting myself. And together we'll go on a journey of discovery as I add to my collection, and we'll listen together to the best that classic rock has to offer. The artist I want to spotlight today is the electric alchemist himself, Jimi Hendrix, and his masterpiece Electric Ladyland. Released in October 1968, it was a sleeper hit with critics. Rolling Stone magazine was unimpressed. The majority of its listeners, though, both at the time and now, heavily disagreed with Rolling Stones' opinion. It topped U.S. charts at number one for at least two weeks straight after it was released, and it consistently makes lists for the best albums of all time. In general, some of the best art sometimes has to sit with people for a while before it really gets appreciated. When I was thinking of the first album to buy on vinyl, Electric Ladyland was first on my mind. Jimi Hendrix is truly one of my heroes because throughout his life, no matter how crazy his onstage persona was, he was very humble, soft-spoken, and a philosophical person deep down. I think most of us tend to forget that like celebrities are people at the end of the day, and we kind of get absorbed in the public shadow that they project to the crowd. Listening to Hendrix talk on the Dick Cavett show, Hendrix has a good point about talent being swallowed up by ego. Being when people get too many compliments, they let it get to their head. They don't remember what is really important, the music. The biggest compliment he would take during that interview was being the best guitarist in that chair that he was sitting in. That's crazy given how even today Hendrix is held up as one of the greatest guitarists ever. And that's a title that's well-deserved. Electric Ladyland, to me, is definitive Hendrix and truly shows how much he excels at weaving guitar riffs of psychedelic rock. Hendrix's sound is really unique in comparison to some of my other favorite guitarists from the same period, like George Harrison, Eric Clapton, or Pete Townsend. Hendrix could showboat, play the guitar with his teeth, or play behind his head, and yet somehow it seemed to come so naturally to him. He's the first person I think of when I think of exceptional guitar solos. Electric Ladyland showcased cases some of my favorite Hendrix songs, and it presents a diversity of hits, some of which have played on the show already. You have an experimental opening called As the Gods Made Love, which is a cacophony of thunderous sounds, to sweet jazz-like melody of Rainy Day Dream Away, to the lawn electric solos of Voodoo Child at the end of the record. The first song I want to play from the album is a song I consider to be a very underrated part of Hendrix's catalog, and an underrated song on Electric Ladyland. Enough from me, though, let's hear the song. Here's Gypsy Eyes by Jimi Hendrix, and we'll be back in a moment. Searching for your love and a my soul too. Well, I'm fine, I ain't gonna let go. 
like to take a moment to thank my wonderful studio at WWSU 106.9 FM for allowing me to use their amazing record player and sound system to bring these tunes straight to you in the best quality possible. So many radio stations have gone primarily digital, but vinyl gives these records that extra sweet sound to me that digital just doesn't offer. Gypsy Eyes has always been one of my favorite Hendrix tracks since I first heard it. It's a love song that's almost operatic and tells a story from start to finish. I almost sense Hendrix had drawn on some of his stormy relationships in his past to write this song. Hendrix actually recorded 50 takes of Gypsy Eyes before he was actually finally satisfied with the final product. He was really channeling his inner Kubrick right there. The beat is really catchy too, and I find myself humming along to it every time I hear it. The next song is one I played before, on the first episode actually. But if I'm talking about Electric Ladyland... I can't not mention my favorite song of all time. I just can't. The song was originally written by one of rock's greatest lyricists, Bob Dylan. But this is the case where I think even Dylan agrees that Jimi Hendrix's version of his song is the definitive version. I think everybody who knows me well knows that this song is all on the watchtower. Don't get me wrong, I like Bob Dylan's version too for different reasons. But this is really the song I think of when I say classic rock. Jimmy had so much respect and admiration for Bob Dylan, and has several amazing covers of Dylan's songs, and this is certainly one of them. What I love about the song is that lyrically it's a combination of social commentary, philosophical musing, and almost mythological symbolism at the same time. What Hendrix adds to this is this grandiose chord progression that builds in volume and scale throughout the song. It adds this weight and gravity behind Hendrix's repetition of Dylan's lyrics that's epic to me. Here's my favorite song and Hendrix's best-selling single, All on the Watchtower. Some kind of way out of here Say the joker to the thief There's too much confusion I can't get no relief Businessman there Drink my wine Plowman dig my earth None will level on the mine Nobody Let's get it later. Hey! 
Actually, I have a funny story about the first time I heard All on the Watchtower. It was in the film adaptation of Watchmen. Zack Snyder has some problems as a director, I'll admit, especially with his more recent stuff. But I loved his version of Watchmen. And the film's soundtrack is amazing. Everything from the Bob Dylan montage at the very beginning, which don't worry, we're going to do a week about Bob Dylan, to All on the Watchtower at the film's climax. The song really added that extra edge of tension and enjoyment to the film's final act for me. And the ending lines of the song fit with what was going on in the film. My dad has always been a huge fan of classic rock, and he's where I get most of my music taste from. But as far as Hendrix goes... That film is definitely what sparked my interest into looking into some more of his music. The last Electric Ladyland song I'm spotlighting today is a slight return to an earlier track on the album. It's Voodoo Child. Not to be confused with Voodoo Child. The track's intro at the beginning almost sounds like a record scratch, which then transmogrifies into waves of psychedelic sound. I think for me, when I think Hendrix, the first three songs that come into my head are his cover of All on the Watchtower, Purple Haze, and Voodoo Child. It's one of his most well-known tracks for good reason. Seeing Hendrix play it live must have been an unforgettable experience. We will come back to Hendrix at some point on this segment of our week for sure, and if you think I've wasted all your sweet time, I'll make sure to give it back to you one of these days. Voodoo Child will play us off to our commercial break and then lead into our second new segment, Geek Corner. We'll be right back, folks. Thank you. 
Welcome back to Reels and Riffs with Random Allen. Ready for some R&R in your busy day? Well, you've come to the right place. For our second new segment, I present Geek Corner. Geek Corner is the segment of our show where we geek out about films, animation, video games, or just cool science. Geek Corner will be more of a freeform segment so I can talk about a range of different cool stuff. That being said, let's talk about the latest episode of The Mandalorian. The first episode back for The Mandalorian was a bit of a controversial one, and I can kind of understand it. My opinion still is that The Mandalorian is the best thing to have to Star Wars in years. But this first episode shows a departure from some of the elements that more casual fans enjoyed about the first season. I want to save major spoilers for the end, but let's break down this episode. Season 2, Episode 1 really embraced Star Wars' Western roots. The basic plot of this episode is that Mando, little baby Yoda in tow, team up with a local sheriff sporting some very familiar Mandalorian armor and some sand people to kill a crate dragon that's been attacking a small town on Tatooine. What's a crate dragon, you may ask? Well, remember that huge skeleton that C-3PO passed at the very beginning of the New Hope? It's that thing, but alive. The plot kind of reminds me of Jaws, but set in a space western. I liked the episode, but I didn't love it. The effects, though, were still spectacular movie quality. The Crate Dragon is enormous and intimidating. The action was on point and well shot all the way through as well. As I've said before on the show, one of my favorite new trends in films like John Wick is to shoot action choreography dynamically and in a way that you can see everything that's happening. At this point, I've gotten really tired of that close, very quick editing style that defined much of the early 2000s action films. I feel like some directors use that kind of editing as a crutch to not set up more interesting choreography and camera work. Back to The Mandalorian, I feel like the backlash was a little bit unwarranted for this episode. I do think that some audiences probably do not share my love for classic spaghetti westerns like the Dollars Trilogy. So the overtly western feel to the episode probably put a few people off. Another thing that probably didn't help was the lack of mini Baby Yoda scenes. But to the people that are saying that this episode ruined the whole franchise, that's ridiculous. The Star Wars Holiday Special ruined the franchise. You know the special that George Lucas said that he was personally ashamed of? That says a lot. George continued to say that if he had time and a hammer, he would destroy every copy. If any of you have ever had to sit through that atrocity, you would not be saying something like that about this somewhat average episode of The Mandalorian. Moving on to the major spoilers from the episode, skip ahead about three minutes if you don't want to hear this, let's talk about Boba Fett. There's been rumors about Boba Fett returning for months and months, and here we are. The biggest fake out was that the sheriff of the town Mando visits was wearing Boba Fett's armor at the beginning. I knew as soon as I saw Boba Fett's armor, he was alive somewhere. EU material had him surviving, and I wasn't surprised that they carried that over into the new canon. Right at the end of the episode, there Boba is, played by returning Tamura Morrison, who played Django in the prequels. Now, I've been a fan of Django and Boba Fett since I played Star Wars Bounty Hunter for PS2 as a kid. Anybody else play that? Great game. This still holds up today. Both characters essentially defined how cool Mandalorians could be. And some of Jango Fett's backstory was incorporated into Mando's backstory for the show. But Lucas kept doing my boys wrong. Boba Fett in the original trilogy looks really cool, but barely does anything. He doesn't do anything in Empire, aside from capture Han Solo, he's not in any really action scenes. And then he gets swatted down a giant sand hole in Return of the Jedi. Expanded universe material always made Boba and Jango so cool, but... Lucas changed the backstory a few years back to make both characters not Mandalorians anymore. They just wear the armor. It's ridiculous because that was the key to find an aspect of their characters and their backstories, and Lucas just threw it away. I really hope that somehow the Mandalorian can retcon that fact back into canon, or at least give Boba Fett the respect he deserved, and maybe have him in a few cool action scenes. Moving on from TV shows, let's talk about video games. Retro video games, to be specific. Retro video games are one of my current stress-relieving pastimes, especially Pac-Man. 
Pac-Man is a pretty old game now, given how it came out all the way back in 1980. It's still pretty popular though. There's been TV shows, spin-offs, and plenty of new games. I've always been a really big Pac-Man fan, even when I was younger because my mom used to play the game all the time as a teenager. I remember playing Pac-Man World games for PS2 and really enjoying them back when I was a kid. Just a few years back, I got hooked on Pac-Man 256 for a bit. The ideal of taking the kill screen and turning it into an interesting like game and adding fun power-ups to play with was really cool. But today, I want to focus on the original and give you listeners some tips to improve your Pac-Man game. Some of these tips come from a video by Retro Game Mechanics on YouTube. Go check them out. And other tips are some that I learned along the way. The first surprising thing that I learned is that each of the ghosts move in pretty predictable patterns. They have four different modes that they go into throughout a level. There's Scatter Mode, Chase Mode, Frighten Mode when they're blue, and Eden Mode when they just turn into eyes. But I'll come back to Frighten Mode later. Scatter Mode is interesting because when the ghosts are in Scatter Mode, like at the very beginning of the match, they will run off to four separate corners of the map. The ghosts will switch for gradually shorter times each time from pursuing you to going into scatter mode and then like heading off to their respective corners of the map. Chase mode is interesting because each ghost has a different way of tracking Pac-Man. In the Japanese game, the nicknames of the ghosts give you a clue as to their behavior. The red ghost is known as Chaser in the Japanese version and will almost always be close behind you. Some of the other ghosts have complicated movement patterns, but Red is always pursuing you unless he's in scatter or frightened mode. Pink is known as ambusher in Japanese, and she targets the space four tiles in front of Pac-Man to ambush you. Because her target is four spaces in front of you, however, there are ways to trick her if she's coming down after you from the top of the map and you quickly turn around when you guys are at an intersection, you can cause Pink to turn the opposite direction because you messed with her targeting. Cyan, or like light blue in Japanese, is called Fickle. And Fickle is right because Cyan can be irritated and unpredictable. Cyan usually tries to work in conjunction with Red to corner you, so you have to be careful. Finally, there's Orange. Nobody likes Orange. And even the Japanese name for him is stupid. Orange sometimes acts like Red and starts chasing after Pac-Man. De but depending on how close he is to Pac-Man, sometimes he just wanders off and goes and acts like he's in scatter mode. Now that we have all the ghosts out of the way, let's work on improving your score. Because the ghosts move in predictable ways based on where Pac-Man is, then they will behave consistently if you find a pattern that works for you. Now, for some levels, like the first two levels, they require different patterns because the way that ghosts come out of the ghost house is a little bit different, the timing is a little bit different. But if you behave consistently, then you'll get consistent results. The only really random variable in Pac-Man is when the ghosts turn blue and go into frightened mode. Then their movements are random and they can be hard to track down. There are actually many preset patterns that some of the best players in the world have already set up, and some of which are written down in books about Master and Pac-Man. Whatever pattern you decide to select though, try to focus on the bottom section of the maze first. The bottom section is the most dangerous area. Because unlike the top section, there are almost no escape routes, and the ghosts are just waiting around to corner you. And the ghosts are just waiting to corner you. Get in the bulk of the bottom dots at the beginning while the ghosts are in scatter mode, and then coming back progressively to finish eating them over the course of the level is probably your best bet. But one of the most helpful tips that has helped me immensely is the fact that the ghosts cannot go up into the T-shaped section right above the ghost house. They can come down into the T-shaped section from above, but they cannot come up into the T-shaped section from below the ghost house. The section around the ghost house, like the general square around it, is probably the safest area to circle around if you know that information. Quit some quick maneuvering, you can get all the ghosts to start following you in a line and chasing you when you exit the area and wait by a power pellet. If you want the most points, you'll need to find a way to group the ghosts. And circling around the maze usually helps me with that. Scatter mode can sometimes be a nuisance here and there because... You get the ghosts all in a perfect line chasing you, and then suddenly they just all wander off to their scatter targets, and they leave you feeling bummed because you got to start the process all over again. But I have a key tip that can be helpful. The instant you eat a ghost, the game pauses for a very brief second, and you can still enter inputs with the joystick. So if you can predict where the other frightened ghosts are going, then you can maximize both your limited time frame and ability to catch them all quickly. 
The last tips I will briefly touch upon before we cut to our short little commercial break are related to movement. Pac-Man is always faster when he's not eating dots. If he's eating dots, then if the ghosts are right next to you, they can easily catch up to him. But if the ghosts are right on your tail and you're still in a situation where you have to be eating the dots, the best thing you can do is make quick turns around corners and that will increase your distance away from them. Now, I do not claim to be any sort of expert on Pac-Man but I do hope my tips will help nonetheless. Even over 40 years later, Pac-Man is still an extremely popular game worldwide and will continue to be one of the most entertaining games for a long time to come. Enjoy Rainy Day, Dream Away by Jimi Hendrix off of Electric Ladyland. Reels and Riffs will be back after a short little commercial break. Enjoy Rainy Day, Dream Away off of Electric Ladyland by Jimi Hendrix. When we return for our interview segment one-on-one, we are joined by famous actress and star of the award-winning animated series Legend of Korra, Janet Varney. We will be right back, folks.
Welcome back to Reels and Rips with Random Allen. For our final segment, one-on-one, we are joined by a very special guest. She's a famous actress with many credits to her name, such as appearances on Stand Against Evil, You're the Worst, Psych, Entourage, and more. She's also a comedian, writer, director, and hosts and stars in several podcasts like JV Club and Voyage to the Stars. In the animation world, however, her fans know her as the title character in the award-winning animated series Legend of Korra. Janet Varney, everybody, how are you doing today? Hello! Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. So, at what point growing up did you realize you had a passion for acting and comedy? And is there an interesting story behind it? You know, as, as many of us who, who did stuff when we were kids, it's like I can't necessarily pin a moment where, you know, all of a sudden I kind of realized I, I loved acting. Um, I do definitely have friends and who can remember that stuff. And I've on my podcast, like you were talking about the JV Club, I talk to people about their teenage years. And, and a lot of the times people do have this moment where they're like, you know, and I got bit by the acting bug and all of a sudden it was all I wanted to do. I just kind of, you know, my dad is very kind of performative. He's got a great sense of humor. And I think he even minored in acting when he was in uh, college. And both my parents were, and he was, he became a teacher and both my parents were teachers. And so I don't know if there's just like something about, you know, being comfortable speaking in front of groups or something that I inherited, but um, I, you know, I was definitely a little goofy kid and, my dad's very funny and goofy and we used to watch a lot of like, you know, funny shows together like the Muppets. So I just, I really loved doing that stuff. Uh, and you know, I started, I went to public school and I, I played Snow White, um, when I was five in kindergarten, uh, with like a really like messy, sad brown wig that kind of looked like it was from the bottom of a thrift store box, um, with my little like white blonde bangs hanging out from underneath the wig. So that was my (laughs) first big, my first big performance was being Snow White when I was five. And apparently that was enough to keep me going. And so, yeah, I've kind of been doing stuff ever since, although I didn't move to L.A. and start doing it professionally until I was almost 30. The way you describe that is interesting. Given that you're both a comedian and an actor, do you believe that there's a connection between good acting ability and good comedic timing? I do. I mean, I think I think drama and comedy are, are to to again, talk about two different things that are equally challenging for different reasons and equally rewarding for different reasons. I, I think, I mean, I don't know, I, I guess I'm not speaking directly to the timing part of it, but like the ability to sort of stay honest in, in something, I don't know. I think in, in our regular lives, we can, we kind of know when we're just saying something to get a response um, versus when we're a little more connected to whatever conversation we're having with people. Um, and, you know, if you're just, in acting and in comedy, if you're just saying the words and and thinking about what you look like or how you sound to the other person or the people watching you, um, something is getting lost in translation. You're not you're thinking too much about the external stuff. And but comedic timing does kind of require that relationship with the outside. Right. Because you want to make sure you, you kind of want to have that instinct for. Um, when is the right moment to say this? What kind of pause do I need? If you're doing a live show, do I get, you know, what, how much time do I give people to laugh? Uh, and a lot of that is kind of hard to teach other than just the experience of doing it. But, but I think that those, all of that stuff becomes the sort of clockwork of, of acting, whether you're performing drama or comedy and dramas can be really hard because, you know, it might be harder to dig deep and do those really tough scenes that are, you know, emotionally dramatic. If you have to do them 10 times in a row, um, maybe that's easy. Maybe it's easier to do comedy 10 times in a row. But at the same time, getting that timing like you were talking about is is also its own challenge. And um, that can be something that, you know, somebody can be great at crying on command, but maybe they can't deliver a joke. So it's nice to try to develop both those skills. It definitely sounds like it kind of varies in situations, but also overlaps in some places. Yeah, absolutely. You've, you have like a lot of experience with this because you've worked on so many different projects and you've been to different conventions, different comedy live shows. Like out of all the projects that you've helped create or starred in, which project holds like a very special place in your heart? And is it difficult to choose between them? Uh, it's almost impossible to choose between them. Um, <laughs> we already talked about Fortune Rookie, which was just very much 
a thing that wasn't about, you know, money or, or anything like that. It was just for people to watch, but also just to do and to play with friends. Um, because I, I'm so lucky to get to work with the community of people that I work with and being able to just have fun and write things for people I think are brilliant, um, was such a privilege. So that's, that, that show is meaningful to me in a, in like such a deep way, but you know, then doing a show like the legend of Korra opened me up to the, this fandom that is so generous and funny and warm and sympathetic and supportive of one another. And, you know, because of stuff that happened on the show, it gets into some really deep issues and, you know, having the opportunity to get to know, people that I wouldn't know otherwise because they want to talk about their experiences, you know, at Comic-Con, that's been life-changing, you know, for me to feel, you know, I think we all hope that whatever we do uh, for work feels some somewhat meaningful and we don't always get there right away. And sometimes work is not the thing we're getting paid for. We're, you know, we're making a living doing a thing, but if there's this other thing that we feel like we're doing, that's, that 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 has meaning for ourselves and for other people. That's the kind of the ideal. So that that sort of satisfaction comes from so many different places. But that and then you know my the comedy festival I produce with my two partners um, that I've been doing since I was in college is really important to me because it brings together a bunch of really talented people in a city I love to perform and we're not going to be able to do it this year because of uh, coronavirus. Oh, so um, it's on my mind because I'm really going to miss that in January. The way you describe it, it's almost like you're trying to decide between like which kid is your favorite. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it really feels like that. Like, I mean, I don't have kids, but um, for sure there's a sense of, you know, God, I would never have wanted to not do something in place of something else. You know, if someone's like, well, let, you have to choose, you can either have done this or have done this. I would be like, I can't choose. Like, I just can't choose. <laughs> because you love them all. I love them all. You were talking about the various, like, actors you've collaborated with. And a little side note before I go in, in further into this questions, into this question, um, one of the things I was watching that, like, you helped direct was Neil's Puppet Dreams. So moving on to Legend of Korra questions specifically, had you already heard of Avatar before you got signed on to play Korra? Yeah, and it was really intimidating for that reason because it's such an amazing show and was and so beloved. And you know, I, when when you get the opportunity to be a part of something that's adjacent to something like that, uh, I really had to sort of disconnect from the idea of what it would mean to get to do something with Mike and Brian and with Nickelodeon and and try like we were just talking about to just sort of stay in the moment because um, you don't want to psych yourself out too much by wanting something too much. Um, but I just, you know, I just went through the audition process, um, like, like, uh, like everybody else. No, no, I mean, I don't know, maybe someone was just like handed something outright, but, um, certainly like I remember doing a chemistry read with PJ and David and, you know, we were part of this kind of long process of trying to find the, the right cast and the right combination and, um, you know, something about it uh, just worked for, for Mike and Brian and for Nick. And um, and so I got to do it. And I, I still can't believe that I, I had that privilege. Um, that's another thing I'll never take for granted, that's for sure. So you were already a fan going into it. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah. And I really was like, you know, you when you, as an actor, you're sort of, continually reminded like just do the do the thing do the audition that's your performance and you got to walk away and assume you're never gonna hear about it again like you have to think of it as you know well that was my chance that was my performance I got to play you know this person on in this thing for the five minutes that I was auditioning for it and and you got to assume that's the last time you're going to do it and then you're pleasantly surprised if you get called in to do it again so um, and it's a really hard thing to do. It's not like, oh, yeah, someone tells you to do that. So that's what you do from there on out. You never get attached to the idea of doing a role. Like, of course, that's an ongoing, you know, thing you have to try to do. Um, but, yeah, somehow, somehow I kept being brought back in and and it ended up working out. So. In your opinion, what ways is your personality similar to Cora's, and in what ways are your personalities different? And do you think that impacted like them casting you for the role? Um, I I 
I mean, I think that's a better question for Mike and Brian, but I do think that they, I mean, I think they've talked about it a little bit, that there is maybe something about um, a lot of, I think a lot of people, we have this thing where, um, you know, we hide our vulnerability through sarcasm uh, and, and, or humors, you know, that's kind of how we keep ourselves safe. And I think that's something that I, I kind of identified in Cora really quickly as I thought, you know, oh, she's, she, she, even if she doesn't realize how unprepared she is uh, or how scared she is, like it's underneath that because she's really fronting. And I know, um, you know, there were definitely people, uh, I've, I've learned more about it now than I did while I was doing the show that were such rabid fans of, of Aang and of Avatar that they really were, you know, they were like, ugh, Cora, she's un- insufferable. You know, she's, she thinks she's so great and blah, blah. She's making all these bad choices and stuff. And um, for me, that's what makes her lovable. And I think it's so important to have a different kind of character go through the process of becoming a better version of themselves um, and to have that conflict. Because for me, you know, my life has not been without conflict. It's been very, very hard at times. And um, I think it's really inspiring to see characters correct their course or have to learn a lesson the hard way or hide their fear through bravado. All of that stuff really speaks to me. And I think that's the stuff that maybe I connected to early on that um, that Mike and Brian maybe saw saw something in, you know, that the ability to be tough, but still kind of show that you're scared inside or something maybe maybe was uh that i would say that in general i'm more honest and upfront about that stuff than cora but i'm also a lot older than cora uh was when she started her journey um and um and uh, you know and i i think we've both been humbled by hardship and i'm really grateful for that you know i wouldn't change any of that I was going to ask about um, because when we get to like season three and four, like the series really delves into like mental health issues, like the lasting effects of like PTSD and depression. Was there any like different way that you approached voice in these episodes? And how did you try to get into the mind of like Cora after she experienced these very traumatic events during like the last, like the second half of the series? Yeah, I, I mean, I just didn't, I didn't have any problem at all accessing that stuff. Um, like I said, I've been through some very similar stuff, and uh, the writing is so great. You know, the, the writing of the show, uh, everything around what we as voice actors do was so beautiful that, you know, our jobs, from my perspective, were very easy because um, because it was all there for us. You know, it was it's not like you're you're pulling blood from a stone, as they say, like, it, you know, I, it, she was so real to me and um, that world was so real to me. And then I and then having my own experiences, you know, all that stuff stays inside you. And so um, there wasn't really a process like the process of kind of getting in that space was honestly just reading the script and then feeling, you know, real connected to to um, the emotion underneath. What aspect do you think of like your work on Legend of Korra was most important to you personally? Uh, I would say a combination of, of the the PTSD, the sort of focusing on mental health um, piece of it, and then also the Korasami story, you know, is, is really important to me personally, and um, m- more more so even than how it affects me. Uh, it's been, you know, just, like, amazing to interact with um, fans who were inspired by that that outcome. And, you know, some of them came out to their parents, um, as either gay or bi, or, you know, they, they came out to themselves or they realized, even if that wasn't their story, that they, um, that they respected it and maybe they had friends who could relate. And I, I mean, I think it really, it, it really did a lot of good. And, you know, it was long ago enough now that it almost does feel like, Oh, isn't that sweet? You know, I can't believe that was an, even a big deal when it happened. Um, but it was, and that's part of, you know, that's part of what we're all a part of is, you know, we're, we're part of a larger, um, continuum that, that, you know, things that seem like, oh, that, gosh, that was so conservative back then. That's so stupid. it's like, well, maybe, but you know, someday somebody's probably gonna be saying that about you in this moment. Uh, if, if that's the case, that means we're doing something right. And from my perspective, 
um, evolving as a species, becoming even more compassionate and empathetic. So, um, but yeah, that, that was a, that was a really amazing, um, part of it for me. Final question. What is the proudest moment of your professional career and why? For sure. Emotionally, like the experience of, of it's multiple experiences, but the experience of, of hearing from fans about their own personal life stories and the, the strength and the reassurance or the, you know, the comfort that they took in something like the legend of Korra, those moments are priceless. I mean, they, they're more important than any, any monetary professional career achievement, you know, award, anything like that. That's just never going to touch, um, the, the power of a person saying, you know, I was in a really bad place and, and this thing that you did that I think you did a good job at really got me through. I mean, that's, there's nothing better than that. So I would say those are the most, the, the moments I'm most proud or I'm, I'm most grateful. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. You're I, so welcome. I greatly appreciate it. And like your words have been very inspiring and informative to me. And I hope to have you back on at some point. Sure thing. Thanks, Random. They were great, thoughtful questions. I really appreciate it. I hope everybody's holding up okay. It's been a hell of a year. And um, and uh, there are a lot of moments, I think, for people where we feel like, um, you know, if you're depressed or you're sad, you feel like you're isolate. you kind of isolate or you feel isolated. And I think there is something to be said for the fact that so many people are going through something like that this year that um, – that there that you should know that you're not alone and do you have any plugs <laughs> uh i would say please listen to my podcast the jv club it's i find it to be very positive wonderful inspiring honest um conversations with these wonderful guests who agree to come on and talk about their their lives and their feelings and their their own experiences so it's free you can listen to it anywhere you get podcasts yeah i mean anything you want to do keep your eyes on sf sketch fests handles like just google sf sketch fest that's my comedy festival we're going to be um doing some stuff to try to you know stay afloat um even though we can't do our festival uh, this this upcoming year so um you can always follow follow us on twitter i'm at janet varney on twitter and the jv club on instagram thanks again janet that's our show folks Tune in to Reels and Riffs next week, Wednesdays from 4 to 5 on WWSU 106.9 FM. Have a great night.